Well, Delicia, thank you very much indeed for that very clear reading. Good morning, everybody. It's lovely to see you, uh, especially if you're with us for the first time. You are very warmly welcome. Uh, can I emphasise the newcomer's tea that we'll be having after the service? It won't take long, um, but I really don't want to be having tea by myself. Um, it has been said that the church is the only institution in the world that exists for the benefit of the non-members. And I think that is a true statement. And why that is so, and what that means here at St Barnabas, I hope to explain to you uh, over a cup of coffee or tea afterwards. But uh, for now, won't you please keep your Bible open at the passage that Delicia read for us, Luke 19, and won't you at the same time have the white bulletin open, uh, because you will find on the inside of the white bulletin an outline that tells you where we're going in the next few minutes. And uh, I'm going to pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we've had very busy weeks. Many cares and distractions preoccupy our minds. Many worries, no doubt. But we ask that you would banish these from our minds now and that you would give us grace to hear your word. We do thank you for the privilege of an open Bible. May we not misuse it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every day, um, each one of us has to make decisions which impact our future in some way. Uh, some of these decisions, of course, are relatively trivial, uh, such as what to eat uh, or how much exercise to take. But other decisions, of course, can be absolutely life-changing. Uh, our choice of career, the house that we buy, the person we decide to marry. And uh, in each case, the wisdom of our decisions is revealed on a day of reckoning. The day that we sit the exam reveals how much we studied. The day that we visit the doctor reveals the wisdom of our diet and exercise choices. The day that the bank statement arrives reveals whether the uh, shopping expedition at the waterfront was really as necessary as it seemed at the time. And in each case, of course, there are real consequences. Now, that is a principle that operates in the Christian life. Time and time again, the New Testament reminds us that our future is conditioned by decisions we made in the past and that we are making in the present. For each one of us, there are rewards or punishments tomorrow depending on the decisions we make today. Now this morning we're going to especially focus uh, on God's promise of rewards for the faithful believer. What are these rewards? Uh, how do we obtain them? I suspect most of us are a little bit fuzzy on this perhaps because we don't entirely see how it fits in with our understanding of the Gospel. I mean, if we're saved by grace, if Christ has done everything necessary to ensure our salvation, well then how can I possibly do anything to merit a reward? 
At first sight, it seems like a bit of a contradiction. But Jesus had a very great deal to say about rewards, and the parable that we're looking at this morning is quite possibly his clearest teaching on the subject. Before we look at the story in a little more detail, we first need to remind ourselves about why Jesus taught in parables at all. I mean, why didn't Jesus just cut through all the packaging and get straight to the main message? Well, Jesus used parables because he knows that by nature, all of us are resistant to change. Most of us uh, like our lives just the way they are, thank you very much. Uh, If you ask my wife Gillian, she'll tell you that I am very much a creature of habit. I have a particular routine for every day of the week, and uh, if that has to change for some reason or other, I don't like it. I resist it. Now, I suspect most of us are like that. At the first suggestion that we might need to change our priorities or our behaviour, we automatically pull up the defences and stop listening. Now, that's the reason that Jesus used parables. He used parables to get right under the radar screen of his audience. He used parables to get people to listen with a view to changing their behaviour. And that is precisely what we have in our passage this morning. And you'll see that if you come with me to verse 11. Can we all see verse 11? While they were listening to this, Jesus went on to tell them a parable. Now, why did he do that? because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So can you see that Jesus taught his followers a parable because their thinking about the future was wrong? And if we think ourselves back into their context, it's not hard to understand why. They were living under the rule of a foreign power, They knew from their Bibles that God had promised to come and rescue them. So when Jesus appeared and started doing things that only God can do and teaching them what the kingdom of God was really all about, well, they naturally expected that the time had come that God was about to step in and keep that marvellous promise. And of course, as soon as I say that, I'm sure you can see the danger Because if Jesus didn't correct their thinking about the future, their hopes would be dashed. And I'm sure we all know, don't we, that when people lose hope, it's only a matter of time before they stop believing and eventually fall away altogether. So here then is how Jesus wants us to think about our lives in the present in order that we can enjoy the rewards that he's longing to give to us in the future. And the parable is teaching us three things that are just as true today as they were then. So first, in Jesus' story, there is an absent king. 
Jesus is uh, telling a story, isn't he, about a man becoming king, and he tells us two things about him. The first is in verse 12. Jesus said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king, and then to return. So the first thing to notice is that once he's been appointed king, he's going away. He's going away for an unspecified period. He will be coming back, but we're not told when. But even more disturbing than his absence is the fact that almost everyone rejected him. Verse 14, But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. Now, part of the genius of this particular parable is that Jesus is reworking a story off the front page of the local newspaper 2,000 years ago. At that time, uh, Israel was run by Rome, and anyone with a claim to the throne had first to travel to Rome to be appointed king there before he could return and start to rule. Now, when Jesus told this story, the local ruler was a man called Archelaus. And his claim to the throne had been very strongly opposed by the Jews on the grounds of his cruelty and corruption. The Jews really had said to the emperor, we don't want this man to be our king. Now Jesus, you see, takes that familiar story that everybody knew about and he puts himself into the title role. Not because he was like Archelaus in character, but in order to show his followers how to understand the immediate future. Remember, will you, that when Jesus told this story, he's in Jericho. He's just 17 miles away from Jerusalem. And his followers, you see, are expecting that when they get there, Jesus will be made king. There'll be a tremendous uprising uh, to throw out the Romans. And the kingdom of Israel will be restored with Jesus on the throne. That's what they were expecting. Now, what actually happened? Well, to see the very striking fulfilment, won't you please keep one finger in Luke and turn ahead to the Gospel of John on page 765. John chapter 19, page 765, verse 13. John 19, and verse 13, page 765. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, Take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? 
Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. And finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Now you see, that is why Jesus taught his disciples that contrary to all their hopes and expectations, he would be rejected. Now of course, as soon as I say that, I hope you realise that that is our context as well. We are surrounded today by people who are saying, if not in so many words, then at least by their behaviour, I will not have this man to be my king. A couple of years ago, the Bishop of Manchester in England opened the doors of his cathedral to host a Spirit of Life festival. Uh, He included in it tarot card readers, crystal healers, dream interpretation, all things explicitly forbidden by Almighty God. Now, he might be a bishop and his cathedral might be full on Sundays. But by his actions, he was saying, I will not have this man to be my king. And he was causing thousands of others to say the same thing. Well, come back to Luke. Because fortunately, that wasn't the end of the story. In verse 15, Jesus goes on to say, He was made king, however, and returned home. So the first thing that Jesus wanted his disciples to do then, and for you and me to be doing this morning, is to embrace a balanced view of reality. And the balance that the Lord Jesus wants us to keep in our minds is that, yes, we are living in a Christ-rejecting world. And Christ the King is physically absent. But he is on the throne. At his resurrection and ascension, God appointed Jesus as King. As the one with all authority throughout the universe. And as the Apostle Paul reminds us, one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, even the Bishop of Manchester. But not yet. Not yet. That's still in the future. And elsewhere we're told, of course, that not even Jesus knew the day of his return. So in the meantime, what does the king want you and I to be doing? How should we be living? Well, that brings us to the second thing to notice in this story, which is the accountable servants. Now, in Jesus' story, before the man goes away to be made king, he gives his servants a job to do. It's in verse 13. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. Now, you'll notice there's a footnote against that verse, and the Bible tells us that a miner was a unit of currency roughly equivalent to three months' wages. But what on earth do the miners represent in Jesus' story? Um, Over the years, there's been a great deal of 
discussion amongst the scholars about this. Many people have said that, um, you know, what we've got here is simply Luke's version of the parable of the talents in the Gospel of Matthew. And because the talents in that parable are abilities, they say that uh, here Jesus is saying something like this. Uh, make the most of the ab- abilities that I've given to you. So, um, for example, if you're a gifted teacher, use that particular gift in the service of God in the church. Uh, or if you're a gifted musician, well, make sure that the music team at church know all about it. Now, that's interesting, but I don't think that's the right interpretation. No doubt Jesus is very pleased when we do make full use of the talents he's given to us. That's a good and a right thing to be doing. It's just not what Jesus means here. For a start, in the Gospel of Matthew, the talents are given in different amounts, reflecting the fact that God gives different abilities to different people. That's why we sometimes talk about uh, Fred, for example, being a talented person. But here in Luke, each miner represents a deposit. And the crucial detail to notice is that the king gives the same amount, the same deposit, to each servant. So the question we ought to be asking is this. What is it that Jesus the King gives equally to all his servants, irrespective of their ability, their performance, or anything else? And of course the answer to that question is the Gospel. The reason I say that is because in the passage immediately before this parable, which we looked at last week, Luke tells us how Jesus met a man called Zacchaeus. And last week we saw that when he met Zacchaeus, Jesus turned his life upside down and gave him a living hope of heaven. And right at the very end of that passage, in verse 10, you might like to look at it, Jesus explains that what has happened to Zacchaeus illustrates his entire mission. Because in verse 10, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. And then immediately, in verse 11, notice this, we read, While they were listening to this, Jesus went on to tell them a parable. Can you see, therefore, there's a definite link between the story of Zacchaeus and the parable we're considering this morning. What is that link? Well, it is quite simply that the parable is all about how the servants of Jesus carry on the mission of Jesus in his absence. We are to seek and to save the lost. Now, I think that once we understand that, the imagery in the rest of the story follows quite naturally. Jesus has made the same investment in each one of us. 
So the newest convert to Christianity has received exactly the same deposit as Martin Luther or Don Carson or John Piper or Billy Graham. We've all received the same good news of Jesus and we've all experienced to some degree his transforming power in our lives. We were lost, but Jesus came looking for us and he saved us, just like he did with Zacchaeus. Now with that in mind, we can come back and try and make sense of the command in verse 13. Just have a look at that command again, will you? Jesus says, put this money to work until I come back. Now the language of putting money to work is more familiar to some of us than to others, but um, it's not difficult to get our minds around it. Uh, So imagine for a moment that uh, Granny leaves you some money in her will, and uh, rather than simply putting it under the mattress, you go off to uh, Barnabas Investment Managers, and you ask them to invest it. And you do so on the understanding that they're going to faithfully look for opportunities to increase your capital. Now, in exactly the same way, the Lord Jesus says to every single Christian without exception, I have made a significant investment in you. I came to seek and to save you. And that investment was very costly for me. It cost me my life. And while I'm away, I'm leaving my investment in your care and I expect you to put this spiritual capital to work to increase its value. And when I return, verse 15, I'm going to ask you what you've done with it. Now, I wonder if you can see how that should change the way that we think about our lives now. It means, doesn't it, that if you're a Christian, life now is not, I'm going to live my life, my way, the way I want, and okay, I'll try and squeeze in a little bit of gospel ministry around the edges when I feel like it. Which, to be honest, is the way that most people think about the Christian life. That is not the picture in this parable. What Jesus is expecting is that we will live our entire lives in the knowledge that one day he's going to send for us and he's going to ask us what we've done with what he gave us. See, Jesus is saying to us ahead of time that he's going to ask, did you use your time your money, your career, your family and friendships to advance the spread of the gospel. And so you see, the point is that if we're Christians here this morning, we are the accountable servants of the King. And that really prepares the ground for the third feature of the story, which I've called the Astonishing Rewards. Now there is a danger, I think, that when we begin to grasp the the magnitude of the responsibility that Jesus has given to each one of us, 
that we feel rather underqualified. I certainly feel like that every time I step into the pulpit on Sunday morning. So it's a very great comfort, I think, to realise that in Jesus' story, our giftedness in sharing the gospel is not the key issue. We know that because in verse 16, when the first servant is called to account, he says, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. So the investment has made a spectacular return of a thousand percent. Despite their very long and distinguished history, Barnabas fund managers have never managed a thousand percent return. But according to the servant, notice this, it had nothing to do with his skill because the miner did all the work. Sir, your miner has earned ten more. And just in case we snoozed off and were thinking about Sunday lunch, we find exactly the same thing with the second servant in verse 18. Sir, your miner has earned five more. That's a 500% return. But again, there's no mention of the servant's skill. So if Jesus is not going to be looking carefully at our skills and our gifts, what is he looking for? Verse 17 is the key. In verse 17, the master says, Well done, my good servant. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. Do you see it? See, the reward has got absolutely nothing to do with the servant's gifts and abilities. He's rewarded for being trustworthy, for being faithful in a very small matter. That's all. That's all. In other words, the Lord Jesus is not going to ask you whether you attempted something for him for which you were totally underqualified and unprepared. He's not going to do that. He's only interested in whether you're faithful in doing what you can do. So he is going to want to know Did you ensure that your family heard the Bible being properly explained? Did you plead with them to respond to the Gospel? Did you live your life in such a way that it made the Gospel attractive? Attractive to your family, attractive to your friends, attractive to your colleagues at work. Now friends, These are things that we can all do. They may take a little bit of effort, but we can all do them. And if we're faithful in these things, the rewards in the life to come are breathtaking. Ten cities. Five cities. Now, I don't suppose we can fathom the full measure of what Jesus means by these cities, but I wonder if you can see how disproportionate the reward is. You know, it's as if um, Jesus says to Grace, well, Grace, you know, you've been very faithful, 
uh, in advancing the gospel in Uganda. And I now need somebody to take charge of uh, Cape Town, London, Paris, New York and Tokyo. Off you go. It's a rather lovely thought, isn't it? You ready for that, brother? You see, the picture is of faithful Christians being given real responsibilities and ruling under Christ in a physical new creation. But don't miss the greatest reward of all. Because clearly the emphasis is not on on the wealth and the prestige of taking care of these cities. It's something else. And I want to share with you an observation that uh, I came across in my preparation that I think is really very helpful. It was written by probably the greatest German theologian of the uh, 20th century, a man called Helmut Thielicker. And in the 1950s, he preached a series of 15 sermons on the parables of Jesus, which were quite outstandingly brilliant. And eventually they were collected and put into a book which is called The Waiting Father. I don't know if you can get hard copy, but I did check yesterday and you can download it on Kindle and I do recommend it. Listen to his comment on the significance of these rewards in this parable. Quote, The splendour of the cities committed to faithful servants will be far less important than the fact that now they are the viceroys of the Lord and therefore among those closest to him, and thus will always have access to him. Their reward is that in the end, the Lord will receive them with honours, that they will be privileged to speak to and live with Jesus forever, because heaven does not consist in what we shall receive, but rather in what we shall become, namely, the companions of the King. Now that's right, isn't it? That's right. The greatest reward for faithful Christians is to become a companion of the King, a companion of Jesus forever. But there was a third servant and we can't close without thinking about him. What can we learn from this third servant in verse 20? Verse 20, then another servant came and said, sir, here is your miner. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth because uh, I was afraid of you. You're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. I've been trying to decide this week whether Jesus wants us to think that this man merely lost his reward or whether he actually lost his salvation. It's not clear, and I think Jesus quite deliberately leaves the matter open. What we can say is that this servant had a totally distorted view of his master. He saw his master as a hard man. And so during his absence, he was unwilling to do anything for him. He couldn't be bothered to ensure that his family heard the Bible being properly explained. He never urged them to respond to the gospel. 
And far from living a life that made the gospel attractive, quite honestly, he lived his life just like everybody else. And whatever his fate did turn out to be, we can't help noticing that Jesus uses a very striking and disturbing word to describe him in verse 22. Do you see there? He calls him wicked. I wonder if you can see, therefore, what Jesus is saying in this parable when we pull all the strands together. He's saying that the delay in the coming of the kingdom is a testing time for every Christian. While Jesus is away physically, our faith is being tested. And the great danger, you see, is that like the wicked servant, we will take the treasure of the gospel, we will wrap it up in a piece of cloth, and we will bury it. I mean, we might try, I suppose, and preserve our Christian life and our Christian belief by coming to church on Sunday now and again. But as far as the world outside is concerned, our Christian convictions are invisible because we've wrapped them up and buried them. We never get out into the world with them. We never let them work for God's glory. We aren't remotely interested in the mission of Jesus to seek and to save the lost. But I want us to hear this morning that Jesus is saying, if you are going to be one of my servants, then my concern must be your concern. And I am concerned to seek and to save the lost. You see, the point is that if we've accepted our own salvation but we don't actually care about the multitudes, and there are multitudes of lost people all around us in Cape Town, how can we honestly claim to love the King? So I think once again this morning, the Word of God is speaking with great clarity to us, isn't it? It's saying, look here, Christmas is just around the corner. In the next few weeks, you will have many, many opportunities to seek and to save the lost. How are you going to respond to them? For example, we have our carol service next Sunday morning. Who are you going to bring to that service, or to any of our services actually, between now and Christmas? Uh, Then we've got um, the word one-to-one which is a terribly attractive journey through the Gospel of John. Very easy to read. Some of us are doing it. Who are you going to be reading the Gospel of John with this Christmas? You see, on the day that the Lord Jesus returns, surely nobody in this church is going to say to Jesus, I know you are a hard man. I know that you've called me to reach out with the Gospel that you gave me, but quite honestly, it's very difficult. Uh, So what I've done is uh, I wrapped it up and I buried it and now I'm giving it back to you. I mean, are we really, are we really going to say that to Jesus? Of course, different people will find different ways to seek and save the lost. But all of us, without exception, can live lives in the world that are channels of the love of God in Jesus for the lost. All of us 
can make our lives count for Jesus by living a distinctively Christian life. That is what Jesus wants us to do. He doesn't want us to, as it were, take our Christian life out of the cupboard on Sunday morning and have an absolutely marvellous time at church and then wrap it up and put it away for the rest of the week. Because, my friends, that is not faithfulness. But if we're faithful, if we are faithful, if we do say day by day, Lord, uh, here I am, I may not be terribly gifted, but please use me. I'm available for you today. Please make my life today count for somebody else. Lord, I want you to work through me, wherever I am, wherever I go, so that something I do today draws another person one step closer to the kingdom of God. Now, my dear friends, that is the faithfulness that Jesus is looking for. And I want to say to you that faithfulness has a snowball effect. Because according to this parable, in the kingdom, faithfulness produces more opportunities for faithfulness. Five cities, ten cities... Massive opportunities for being faithful. But the refusal, for whatever reason, to be involved in Jesus' concern for the lost is faithlessness. And Jesus says that in the end, the faithless servant will lose even what he thought he had. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for this remarkable parable with its promise of great rewards for faithful servants. Lord, may our hearts be deeply moved by the fact that Jesus has done for us what he did for Zacchaeus. Help us not to be complacent and keep your investment in us hidden away. Rather, give us your burden for the lost this Christmas time. May each one of us here this morning say, Lord, here I am, use me. And please hear that prayer. And however weak and imperfect our efforts may be, please help us to be faithful in sharing with others what you have done for us. And may it please you to use our faithfulness to seek and save some of the lost, even this Christmas. And we ask it for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen.